0: Welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. How's it going? I hope you are having a great week. I think it's about to get even better because we got a great show in store for you. Our theme on Livewire this week is letting go. We're going to be talking to Tommy Pico. He is a poet. He wrote an entire book length poem about trying to let go of a relationship that didn't work out. We've also got Eli Saslow, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Uh, He profiled someone who had to let go of everything they'd grown up with. But when you hear what that was, you'll realize they made the right call. Uh, We've also got comedian Emily Heller here, and we have got music from Portland's own Helio Sequence. Letting go is something that I tend to have a hard time with, whether the topic is something really big or even something kind of small. In fact, on my way to record this episode of Livewire... I had like a little run in at the airport that I had a hard time letting go of. I was telling uh, our announcer, Elena Passarello, about it at the beginning of the show. Um, Let's actually pick it up right there uh, on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Take a listen. Today, this very day, I was in the airport. I was flying down here to do the show and I went through security and my bag was passing through the scanner and it got flagged. They made an announcement over the loudspeaker, we need somebody to look at this bag. They pulled it out. They took everything out of the bag, wiped it all down, and couldn't figure out why the scanner went off. Finally, the guy realized it was because I have a water bottle, like a clean canteen water bottle, and it had, and I'm not exaggerating, five molecules of water still in it. What? Like I had actively dumped out the water, but there was some residue in there. And the guy said, yeah, you can't have that water. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? For the safety of this flight, I am willing to dump out the water. And I'm not going to take it on the plane with me. Uh, so where do I do that? And he said, security rules are you can't do that on this side of security. Oh, no. You have to go back out to the other part of the airport, dump your water out, all five molecules no. of it. Get back in line and then come back through security. But he said, he said or... You can just leave the water bottle here. But? But I just bought it, it was like $20. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is a scam by the TSA to get free water bottles and free PERT plus over three ounces. Yeah. Because there's always just, like, dead soldiers lined up (laughs) from people who didn't want to. And I was like, you know what? I'm putting the system on trial. I am going to do this. I'm going to take the water bottle out through security and come back in. And I was like, can I leave my bags here? He was like, absolutely not. So I had to get my bags back, get my water bottle, go out, find a bathroom, dump out the five molecules of water wait in line come back through and the whole time I was going through security I just mean mugged that TSA guy like I am not letting this go and I haven't because I'm talking about it on the show right now yeah. you know honestly though it's not even that guy's fault he's, it's the protocol it's the procedure he's just doing his job and that's the part of my brain that I wish would be able to identify that he is not the enemy he just has a job but I couldn't let it go hmm. how are you at let, please tell me some person in this radio duo is good at letting things go because no, it's not oh, me. No,
1: I'm terrible. Oh, I'm terrible. Great. Well, I'm kind of good at it just because I forget everything. <laughs> uh, that my gold, you know, my goldfish memory sort of helps. Um, and yeah. unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people in our audience are great at letting things go. Oh yeah, either. we we passed out some
0: audience <laughs> cards and we asked people about uh, something they've had a hard time letting go. People here in the Alberta Rose Theater, and they filled those out. Um, and you've got some of those with you, Elena. Wh- which ones would you like to share with us?
1: Oh, they're good this go around, I have to say. Um, this person chose to remain anonymous, and I don't know why because these are four of my favorite sentences that have ever been written in the English language. This anonymous person from zip code 97211 so that narrows it down uh, has a hard time letting go of rocks. I love to collect rocks. They're all over the house in the car. My husband says the place looks like a quarry. (laughs) Wow. I like the enthusiasm. It
0: also sounds like a workout. Like, how many rocks is this person bringing home (laughs) on a daily basis? That sounds heavy.
1: Uh, Here's one from C. Edward. Uh, It's covered in what appears to be a fine Willamette Valley pinot, maybe around... Yeah, it's definitely
0: a wine spill on the card, which is usually the mark of excellence on this show.
1: And uh, guess what C. Edward has a hard time letting go of?
0: I couldn't even guess.
1: Obviously not wine, he wrote.
0: (laughs) Wait, is that what they wrote? (laughs) C. Okay. That's great, because you know that wasn't the plan. They had a different thing they were going to write, and they spilled wine, and they decided to make lemonade
2: by making that their answer.
0: Good on you. All right. Uh, It's good that we're talking about letting go this week, because we have a guest we're about to bring out who knows all about that, or at least trying to let go. His latest release, Junk, is a book-length breakup poem. It's the third in a series Uh, which has been called Contemporary Epics of Rare Brilliance. Let's welcome Tommy Pico to (laughs) Livewire. Welcome to the show, Tommy. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, This book, Junk, is the third in a a series where you write about Tebes, can you talk about the character of Tebes a little bit?
2: Yeah, so Teebs is my alter ego. He's the version of me that is always at a 10. The loudest, the sexiest, the, the most pissed off, you know. Um, it doesn't take Tebes much to get uh uh motivated for any type of action, right? I'm I'm just way more buttoned up than that. I'm actually kind of a prude. Like, Teebs is promiscuous. But the thing is, like, the reason why I felt like I needed to create a persona was because I needed a way to detach myself from the work that I was making, because if I thought it was about me, I would get too precious or I would get too um, self-censoring so, so that, like, I would came off looking in a really good light. Whereas, like, Teebs is allowed to be dumb, you know, Teebs is allowed to make mistakes and to, to not have the right answers, and I don't feel self conscious about that.
0: Do you ever find yourself in real life being like, hold on, Tommy, you're in Teebs town right now? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
2: but I, usually, that's. Was that him right there? Yeah. Was that Teebs right there? <laughs> but but the, the spirit of Teebs leaps out of me every now and then. Um, a lot of times on dates, sometimes special times. Uh,
0: Um, So this character, Tebbs, I understand you were writing about him in zines when you were a kid. What were you doing creatively when you were, uh, you know, in your teen years? Um, My
2: first sort of zine collective was when I was in fifth grade. It was called Tommy Gunn Comics, and I would get my cousins and my friends to draw comic strips for me. I would Xerox them and I would sell them at recess for a dollar (laughs) each. Um, I was a little entrepreneurial back in the day. Uh, it's continued, a streak that's continued. And then um, in my teenage years, I would make zines, like sell them you know, um, outside of punk shows so I could have enough money to go to the punk shows. And then later on, when I was like maybe 26 in Brooklyn, I started an arts collective called the Birdsong Collective. And we were poets and and, and nonfiction writers and um, essayists and, and, and short story writers and artists. And they would each give me something. And every two months, I would have a release party. And after five years, we had like 20 issues and a nice little spot in like the Brooklyn arts scene.
0: Um, you wrote a book, another book that featured teebs called Nature Poem. And I think the one of the things that's brought up in it is fascinating because as a, as a Native American and indigenous person, uh, there's this assumption that you have this love affair with the wind mm-hmm. and nature and that you just want to write about it. But you've, you write that that's not something that has always come super easy to you.
2: Yes. I mean, essentially, I guess I had to interrogate this idea of like, what is my standing with nature, right? Because there's like, it's not that I don't mess with nature. That's what I realized. It's not that I hate nature, although I kind of do hate nature. I mean... (laughs) I live in the busiest cities in America. Like, I'm not trying to be outside and go hiking and all that stuff. No offense, Portland. Yeah, you're, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, that's just me. I'm not, I'm not prescriptive about my lifestyle. You can do what you want, and I can do what I want, and everything's cool. Um, but there's this whole sort of Western, heto-patriarchical, white supremacist thing that tells me my relationship to nature, right? And I was trying to get outside to of that. You have to paint with all the colors of the wind. Exactly. I can accept nature, but it's going to be on my terms. Yeah. You know, it's I can accept certain forms of identity. I can accept uh, leather and feathers and beads and all these things, but it's going to be on my terms, not terms that were made without me in mind.
0: Uh, in your bio, you say that you sort of begrudgingly admit that you're a performer. Mm-hmm. What Were you trying to avoid being a performer in your life? Uh,
2: not necessarily. I mean, I, I was cripplingly shy. I believe that performance is partly... Um, preparation and partly experience. One of them you have control over and then one of them is just a matter of time. And I knew that all I needed to do was get on stage more often and that thing would come back to me, whatever had been there when I was a child. Um, And that's why I started the arts collective so that I had a stage every other month to go on. I hosted the readings and I read at them. After five years, I was all right. But then after 15 years of performing in Brooklyn, I finally got to the point where I don't actually get nervous and actually I do have a good time and I can remember all of it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: We've got to take a quick break. We're talking to Tommy Pico. His latest book is Junk. This is Livewire from PRI. We'll be back in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Based in Portland, Oregon, Fully is an amazing company that sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier, while you are being productive, doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording LiveWire. That's right. I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing, keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast. If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive, at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y ycom slash livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter. That gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well and just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference in your, in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, It's made such a difference for me and for our whole LiveWire staff. And I know you're going to have the same experience. So again, find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash LiveWire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Pasarella. We're here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to writer Tommy Pico. His latest book is Junk. What do you mean by junk?
2: Junk at its core is trying to get at this idea of whether or not you can exist without having to be a function of something right, that you have to have a usefulness? What if you could just be and live? Do you always have to be on your grind? Like, do you always have to be, like, somebody else's lover or do you always have to, like, what happens when you strip away these types of identities, right? A boyfriend, uh, a homeowner, uh, whatever, and, like, what, what is underneath all of that?
0: Did you go through a breakup that caused you to actually have to do this examination on yourself? Absolutely. Well,
2: it was a weird thing. I call it a breakup poem in couplets, but it was like a breakup poem getting fired and then being told I had to leave my apartment. Yeah, so it was like, it was an avalanche of stuff that really got me in that existential space where, I've like, I had no tether. So it's like, what am I? Was, it, it was It's a poem of stasis. And maybe being like, is there something beautiful about the stasis? Is there something beautiful about not feeling any limits, right? Because a lot of times we use those markers of identity to kind
0: of moor us. Yeah. But unmoored could also mean free. How do you describe your uh, uh, style of of writing? I read Nature Poem and I read Junk and it was fascinating. I never really seen anything like it actually.
2: Um, Well, I love book-length poems. They're my favorite thing ever. I love the fact that there is a whole... That there's an experience that you can have over the course of a book that's not unlike the experience you can have over the course of a film. But it is also challenging because it's lyric and it's not always narrative and there aren't always characters and there's not a plot. And so then it's like, well, what do you... What meaning do you accrue from that? I'm fascinated by that. And also... Like, a lot of people like to bring up people like Ann Carson or or Claudia Rankin or um, A.R. Ammons as reference points for me, but honestly, there's a tradition in my tribe older than that. It's called Ishakapa. They're the bird songs. It's my namesake. It's what I was named after. And there are these epic song cycles, and they're kind of travelogues, and they talk about how um, the Kumeyaay people kind of migrated into the ancestral homelands. And so my... Ishaka Paz, my my new bird songs are how I left that homeland and where I'm going now. Uh,
0: Can you read something from Nature Poem for us? Sure. All right, this is Tommy Pico reading from Nature Poem. From Nature Poem.
2: I can't write a nature poem because that conversation happens in the hall of South American peoples in the American Museum of Natural History between two white ladies in buttery shawls as they pass a display case of traditional garb from one tribe or another. It doesn't really matter to anyone. And that word natural in natural history hangs. Also history, also peoples, hangs as in frames. It's horrible how their culture was destroyed, as if in some reckless storm, but thank God we were able to save some of these artifacts. History is so important. Will you look at this metalwork? I could cry. Look, I'm sure you really do just want to wear those Dreamcatcher earrings. They're beautiful. I'm sure you don't mean any harm. I'm sure you don't really think about us at all. I'm sure you don't understand the concept of off-limits, but what if by not wearing a headdress in your music video or changing your mascot and perhaps adding .05% of personal annoyance to your life for the 20 minutes that annoyance exists, the 103 young people who tried to kill themselves on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation over the past four months wanted to live like 50% more. I don't want to be seen, generally, I'm a natural introvert, and I def don't want to be seen by white ladies in buttery shawls, but I will literally die if I don't scream.
0: Tommy Pico. Thanks. The new book is Junk. Do not go anywhere because coming up we have comedian Emily Heller who says that her friends who tell her she got so lucky because she found a husband through online dating, they have no idea what she went through. I ate at a
3: restaurant that gave me food poisoning every day for years. And then one day
0: I tried the pasta and it was fine. That is coming up right here on LiveWire. Stay with us. LiveWire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines, who asks, what comes to mind when you think of Alaska Airlines? Snow drifts and husky puppies? Well, how about sunscreen and salsa dancing? Yeah, don't be fooled by the name. Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world with 1,200 daily flights and over 115 destinations like New York, Honolulu, and Mexico City. So the next time you think Alaska Airlines, think skylines, luau's, and margaritas. Find out where else they fly at alaskaair.com. This is live Wire radio from PRI. This week we're talking about letting go, and we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland uh, to tell us about something they've had a hard time letting go of. And Elena Passarello, you've been uh, collecting those up. What are you seeing?
1: Uh, Matthew has had a hard time letting go of four pounds of bacon in my freezer. It's been there for years. (laughs) But manager special at Fred Meyers can't pass up a good deal. Deals with like four exclamation points after it.
0: (laughs) I can totally relate to that. There's a part of my freezer that human eyes have not even been able to look upon it for the last six years. What? It's frozen over. I think there are some old drumsticks, like not like the band was using, but like ice cream cones. Oh. There might be like a Trader Joe's Indian thing down in the bottom of it.
1: (laughs) No ice cream would ever uh, fall into freezer disrepair in my house. Really? Yeah, no, I mean, really, you don't even need a freezer when you bring home ice cream in my house. It's
0: it's not going to make it. (laughs) Uh, Do you have one more?
1: Yeah, here's one from, I I think, Uh, Zinnan. Zinnan has had a hard time letting go of overthinking. It took me 20 minutes to decide on this.
0: I hope Zinnan is here with whoever spilled wine on their card. That would be a good combo. This is Live Wire Radio. We are talking about letting go this week. What about the idea of letting go basically everything that you were raised to believe? That is exactly what a guy named Derek Black did when he decided to turn his back on, wait for it, the white nationalist movement. It was a movement his father helped to create. His journey of letting go was detailed in a series of articles in the Washington Post by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Saslow. Now Eli has turned those articles into a book titled Rising Out of Hatred. Please welcome Eli Saslow to Livewire. Eli, welcome to Livewire. Thanks, great to be here. Um, how did you first meet this guy, Derek Black?
4: So, I was writing about Dylan Roof for the Washington Post. And Dylan Roof had committed the hate crime murder of about a dozen people at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina. And Dylan Roof had spent time on this website called Stormfront, um, which I'd heard of, but I didn't know very much about. So, in trying to understand the things that Dylan Roof had been reading to sort of motivate him, for this massacre, I went on Stormfront and started reading this site. It's the, the largest racist website in the world and has been for two decades running. And the biggest thread on this website, there were plenty of people saying you know, horribly celebratory things about Dylan Roof, but the biggest thread was about somebody named Derek Black. And so I clicked on it and started to read and learned pretty quickly that Derek Black was the rising heir to not only this website, but also to this movement in the United States. He was the son of the founder Of this message board The godson of David Duke He'd been raised And David
0: Duke For those of you Who fortunately Don't know who that is Yeah you're lucky He's a former Grand wizard of the KKK
4: Yeah exactly And he had sort of Made this guy Derek Black His protege And Derek Being really smart And ambitious Had been disastrously Successful In mainstreaming A lot of these Terrible ideas He'd been elected To office by the time He was 20 years old He had a daily Elected
0: to what Kind of office
4: To a Republican Committee seat um, In Florida In Florida Yep. Uh, In West Palm Beach, Florida, which is a pretty diverse place. Uh,
0: Let me ask you a little bit about this sort of stormfront thing and how it related to this movement between what a lot of people would call white supremacy or the idea of being a white supremacist and something called white nationalism. because. I would think those are the same thing, but actually, Derek Black's dad was a big part of trying to move from white supremacy to white nationalism. What's the difference?
4: Sure. Uh, They've worked really hard to change the language of this movement to try to sanitize it from a history of bloodshed. But I think the true distinction that is helpful between white supremacy and white nationalism is white supremacy unfortunately, is endemic to what the United States has been historically and is today. Um, We're all still living in a country that was built, unfortunately, on a lot of white supremacist ideals. White nationalists, I think, properly identifies a smaller group of people who are trying to separate races onto different continents as their end goal.
0: But like the idea, too, was that this guy, Derek Black, his father, founded this website and was trying to make kind of an intellectual argument, like be the sort of thinking person's racist?
4: Yeah, I mean, they, he Derek's father had also been the head of the Klan for a decade in the United States, um, and eventually decided it was more effective to build a gigantic website, and eventually to ban all slurs from that website. There's no Nazi insignia, no racial slurs. What they've tried to do is instead of speaking all the time horrible things about people of color and Jews, is instead they're trying to speak to, unfortunately, the fairly widespread and factually incorrect sense of grievance that exists in part of white America.
0: Um, This kid, Derek Black, is not just kind of a passive observer to this, like his dad is starting this website and he's going into forums on the internet and popularizing these buzzwords like white genocide and things like that. When did he actually start to realize that maybe this was not a good way to be living his life?
4: Not until he went to college, um, because Derek, in many ways, had been indoctrinated with a lot of these ideas. Everybody who he lived with believed these things and had made it the cause for their lives. And they pulled Derek out of the public schools and kept him sort of in the confines of white nationalism, and that's where his childhood existed. He was the keynote speaker at all these white nationalist conferences from the time he was 10 years old. So only in the first time that he got out of that world and began bumping into the people who were often the victims of his prejudices did any of his ideas begin to shift and that was when he was 21 years old went to the best college and the cheapest college in Florida happened to be a super liberal place which Derek didn't quite realize until he got there um, yeah. and and uh, pretty quickly on campus realized that if people knew who he was he would be ostracized uh and and shamed pretty quickly so for the first year on campus he led this secret life where he would leave the dorms every morning, leave all of his friends and go out to a quiet place on campus and have a two-hour radio show with his father railing against like, the multicultural takeover of America. And then he would go back onto this diverse campus and befriend whoever walked by. And, and that lasted for a full year.
0: Uh, we're talking to Eli Saslow. He is a writer at the Washington Post. He has a new book out called Rising Out of Hatred about Derek Black, uh, one time kind of you know, heir apparent to the white nationalist... <laughs> Uh, movement who who changed his mind at some point. Uh, I find the story of him getting to college uh, that you write about really fascinating because one part of the campus is trying to, when they figure out that he's this guy, they're trying to get him kicked out of the campus and out of the school because they feel like he's propagating hate speech. Right. And then there are a couple of other kids who like invite him to Shabbat dinner.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... You know, one of the great lessons for me in reporting this book is that there are a lot of different ways to effectively impact people's thinking and to confront these really problematic, disastrous ideas, you know, and on this new college campus, students took vastly different approaches, but the thing that they all did is they invested themselves. They decided there was a huge problem and they were going to do something about it. So for some students that meant shutting down the school, shaming Derek every time they saw him, flipping him off, telling him to get the hell off campus. Um, It was hugely effective. Derek moved far away from campus. He was really isolated. He was sort of confronted for the first time with the true horror of a lot of the things that he believed in the eyes of his peers. And then when these two Jewish classmates and a group that then widened and invited him over, he was much more likely to say yes because he had nobody to hang out with. So he accepted this invitation. And then I think the persistent courage of many of these people to not just invite him over once, but to invite him over week after week after week, sometimes with no sense that really they were making an impact on him. And many of these students were, were, again, the victims of these terrible things that Derek had said. And they printed out the awful things that he'd said about Jews or immigrants and posted them on the wall of their dorm room to remind themselves of how horrible these ideas were, and yet they kept inviting him back. And eventually that was... Partially a a big part of his transformation
0: when did that change really start to manifest in Derek Black
4: I think it, it manifested slowly where like, pieces of the things that he believed in would slip away. Other students on campus also armored themselves with the facts about you know racial science and crime statistics. All, these, all this false science that white nationalists try to build their ideology around. And they would argue Derek on the facts. And he was you know smart enough to look at these studies and see that actually they were right. So various parts of his ideas started falling away. But the thing that was holding him in place is that he knew, eventually, if he disavowed this ideology, he was going to lose his family, every piece of his identity, every connection he had to the first 23 years in his life. And he did. I mean, after very publicly disavowing it, he changed his name, moved across the country, and tried to disappear, in part for his safety, because the stormfront community is not a great community to have angry at you. neo nazis skinheads uh, who think that you're a huge traitor. Um, but also because...
0: I believe I, they were referred to as some very fine people by the current president. <laughs> right,
4: exactly. So I guess, I guess potato <laughs> per pa- racist. There are good people on both sides, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so um, you know, I, I think Derek also hoped for a while that all of this awfulness that he'd spread into the world he sort of naively thought maybe it will stay there maybe like i can just go on and live a life and be a good person and all of this stuff will disappear and in this case you know often as a reporter i'm i'm sort of in the process of trying to convince people to talk to me mm-hmm. over time for derek the thing that i think compelled him was what was happening in the country. I mean, he saw all of these talking points that he had popularized spreading into the presidential campaign in 2016. You know, it was, it was David Duke and Don Black who first, with the KKK, came up with the idea of building a wall on the, on the southern border and took the national media there to drive around saying that immigration was, was changing the country and, you know, sort of playing to the sense of ownership, this false sense of ownership that exists in these parts of white America. When you read the book it's it just feels like
1: you're in the heads of these individuals what what do you have to do as a reporter to get to a place where you can write this is almost like an omniscient narrative who can get into the heads and the hearts of these people.
4: That's really uh, nice to say. I mean, part of it is spending a ton of time with the people that you're writing about and building trust slowly. So with Derek, the first time I met him, uh, we met in a s- random city that I thought was his hometown. But in fact, he had had me come to a random place in case he wanted to then disappear again. You know, He talked about people in his life in, in sort of code names. Uh, but trip after trip, building up trust, showing that I was genuinely interested, that I was invested in getting it right. Um, Trust builds pretty quickly. You know, I think my job as a reporter is often to build a relationship with people that establishes some trust and to uh, to listen and to show up again and again and to be genuine in the fact that I really care about what they're saying. You know, The other thing that helped a lot in this case is the book is based on essentially all these original documents um, where I didn't have to ask people what they were thinking at the time. I had the archives of what they were thinking at the time because Derek and his father were on the radio every day. There was Stormfront, this huge archived message board. You know, And then luckily for me... A lot of the people in the book are millennials who document their lives relentlessly. So if I was like, hey, what was happening on this random Thursday in 2013, they would send me like 200 G-chats from that day. Wow. So uh, so the dialogue in the book could be organic dialogue rather than me trying to recreate it and guess at what changed his mind. We're
0: talking to Eli Saslow. His book is Rising Out of Hatred. It's about... Uh, Derek Black, who uh, who dropped out of the White Nationalist Movement. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, Eli is. Um, what, in, in the time you spent looking into this movement, uh, what do you think the sort of current state of it is? I think a lot of us assumed that white supremacy and white nationalism and things like that were going the way of the dodo bird, and then suddenly someone gets elected espousing a lot of the talking points and it's really upsetting and it makes me wonder, are they getting sort of stronger and bigger and more influential?
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think they are. Um, And I think honestly, part of the problem sometimes in America is that we have, we have sort of convinced ourselves that things like white supremacy are, are going away when in fact they're not. Um, and, and I think sometimes in America, we tell ourselves a story of like, we are a great meritocracy and everybody has the same shot, which just the statistics and the facts don't bear out.
0: What, I mean, what are the rest of us, the non-sympathizers with that way of life, other than inviting whatever white nationalists we meet over for Shabbat? <laughs> like, what what can people do? Because it's a really scary thing to hear about.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I would say the lesson for me in this was that you should confront it in whatever way is comfortable to you. So for some people on this new college campus, that meant organizing protests and and, you know, Forcefully, in terms of civil resistance, showing that this is not okay. Um, For other people, it meant debating in a more academic way on the stats. But I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we said that we don't all have the opportunity, in some way, in our own lives, to confront some of these really problematic ideas. I know that I do. I mean, just in the people that are in my extended family. And you know, the problem. Thanksgiving
0: is coming, everybody.
4: (laughs) The the true problem with these white nationalist ideas is that it would be comforting to think that it's a small number of fringe extremists uh, who who are espousing some outside ideology. The real problem is it's something that is much more widespread and pernicious and subtle that exists, I think, around many of us. So I'd say when you see it, it's an opportunity to do something about it. Derek at one point when we were talking about this book, said something that stayed with me where he said, you know, for him, the act of speaking up again and again uh, feels essential because in this moment, being silent feels like being complicit. And and I think that that's an important thing to take away.
0: Eli Saslow's new book is Rising Out of Hatred. Eli, thank you so much. This week's episode of LiveWire is supported by Scout Books, makers of custom notebooks right there in Portland, Oregon, USA. Hey, if you have a brand that you're looking to grow or a business that you want to promote, or maybe you want to have some cool giveaways at an event, or maybe you just want some really styling custom notebooks for your own personal use, Scout Books is the place to go. They're known for durable, 100% recycled papers, colorful vegetable oil-based ink, fast, easy online ordering. How do we know how fast and easy it is? Well, because we partnered with Scout Books this fall and we made some awesome custom notebooks for our show and our listeners and the people coming to our live events have been loving them. If you're ready to create your own custom notebook or just get a beautiful notebook that they've actually made already, Scout Books has you covered. you want to find out more, head over to scoutbooks.com That's scoutbooks.com Com. I am so excited about our comedian this week. She is hilarious. She's appeared on Comedy Central, Late Night with Seth Meyers, also on Conan. She's also a writer on one of my favorite HBO series, Barry, which is about a hitman who finds that his true passion is community theater. Her new comedy album, Pasta, will be out soon. Please welcome Emily Heller to Livewire.
3: It's so great to be here with you guys in the end times. How's everyone hanging in? In a true sign of the apocalypse, I joined a gym this year. Um, I joined for what I think is a pretty unusual reason. I joined because at the age of 32, I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Maybe soon I'll get my braces off, get my period, who knows? But I've been reading more about it you know, in um, short spurts. And it, it turns out that one of the things that's supposed to really help with ADHD is regular exercise, which was devastating news. Um, so I joined a gym. My gym membership came with a free personal training session. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds like that sucks. Uh, But it was free, so I went and I said, listen, here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna show me how to use these machines without bonking my head, and then you and I are gonna part ways for the rest of our lives. (laughs) And he said, I totally get it, but first we do need to do a questionnaire about your fitness goals. And I was like, oh, I feel like it should be clear from that last thing I said, (laughs) that I do not have fitness goals. (laughs) My fitness goal was to join a gym, and I did that already, so I kind of feel like taking the rest of the year off, if I'm being honest. And he was like, it's not that big a deal, I just want you to tell me what it is you're hoping to get out of this. And I was like, okay, I guess I would like to improve my posture, my stamina, my general energy level. And he goes, okay, great, and your goal weight? And I was like, oh, uh, not applicable. Uh, And he was like, you don't wanna lose weight? And I was like, no, I do not. And he got this look on his face that told me that what he was thinking was, but I can see you. But here's the thing, I wasn't joking and it's nothing against any of you if you want to lose weight. There's nothing wrong with that. I think I used to want to do that when I was younger and then what happened was I gained 40 pounds and then I started making a lot of money and having a lot of sex. And I'm not saying the weight is why that happened. I'm just saying I don't want to jinx it. So I don't want to lose weight. And he goes... Looking in the mirror, there's nothing you want to change. I was like, I don't know, maybe like the person I'm talking to right now. (laughs) He goes, he goes, let me put it this way. He's very frustrated at this point. Let me put it this way. If you lost weight, would that be okay with you? And at that point, it was clear to me that he was not going to let me leave there until I admitted to him that I was Slimer from the Ghostbusters. So I decided to throw him a bone. I was like, I'll give you this. Ever since I put on weight, I've got a little bit more meat in my neck. It's made breathing a little bit harder than it used to be from certain positions when I'm lying down on the couch. I guess if that improved, I'd be fine with it. And... Oh my God, you guys, he looked so relieved. He was just like, okay, so we want to lose some weight. And he wrote it down and the quiz was over. Isn't that crazy? I'm still so mad about it. I'm, I'm mad at me, right? Because I missed an opportunity to just walk in there and be like, oh yeah, my goal weight I guess like this plus 500, um, I want to gain 500 pounds, but I only want to gain it from the waist up. Is that possible? I want to be a perfect circle, no neck anymore, neck gone, same size legs. Is that? Basically, I want to look like the sexy green M&M. Can you make that happen for me? It's been, a, it's been a big year. Um, I got married recently. Uh, hold your applause, I didn't want to. Uh, it was for health insurance. Um, I didn't even post about it on Instagram, so I'm not sure it's legally binding. Um, I, met, I met my husband online, it's where I do all my shopping. I have Amazon Prime too, so it was like two days, so fast. I'm just kidding, it took forever, and I met a million monsters, it was the worst. It was like trying to beat Super Mario, it was just like monster after monster, just like turtle, mushroom, lizard, just like over and over and over again, until I eventually found the princess. The weirdest reaction I think I get is like, when I introduce my husband to one of my friends, and they find out that we met online, they're like, you met him online? But he's so normal, and nice, you won the lottery. I'm always like, how dare you? I did online dating for years before I met my husband. Winning the lottery takes one day, no skill. That analogy does not properly honor my resilience. Do you have any idea how many men's opinions I had to listen to before I met him? How many conversations I had about Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) It was just the one conversation, but I had it a hundred (laughs) times. And guess what? It ended the same way every time with me saying, yeah, I haven't seen that one either. (laughs) And that's once you get to the date before the date. There's the profiles and the messages. When you're a straight woman online dating, you just have to read a bunch of personal essays by unaccomplished men. It's the worst book club you've ever joined. (laughs) So no, I didn't win the lottery. That doesn't describe my experience. What happened was I ate at a restaurant that gave me food poisoning every day for years. (laughs) And then one day I tried the pasta and it was fine. (laughs) I was just like, oh, I guess this is what I'm ordering now. Uh, Yeah, I might get bored of this eventually, but I cannot risk it on another menu item at this point in my life. Thank you guys so much. Emily
0: Heller, everybody. Her new comedy album, Pasta, is coming out soon. We'll be back with more of her in a moment. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. Hey, special thanks this episode to David Yanko of Minneapolis, Minnesota and Cheryl Albertson and Lance Churchick of Portland, Oregon. David, Cheryl, and Lance are part of the Live Wire member community known around here as the League of Extraordinary Listeners. And here's what they're doing generously They are supporting LiveWire with a donation each month. And we are very, very thankful for that support because no joke, it is genuinely how we are able to keep doing LiveWire week in and week out. So a huge thanks to David, Cheryl, and Lance for helping make this whole thing happen. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Uh, We are here with Emily Heller. I want to talk about something with you that is uh, very visual, actually. So I don't know if this is a great. Great
3: radio for,
0: for radio. <laughs> but uh, you're a TV writer. You write on the show Barry, and you went to the Emmys recently, and you pulled off like the greatest stunt I've ever seen. You had a purse that's you had a Getty Images, the words Getty Images. Uh, I had the Getty Images watermark right. on my purse, and oh. the purse was the color
3: of the watermark, also. So
0: when you're on the red carpet. Uh, Every photo of you looked like it had the Getty Images watermark on it.
3: Yeah. Well, my thinking was, like, anytime you see people at a really fancy event, they have the Getty Images watermark on the picture. So I thought that it was just like a classy move for my first Emmys.
0: How much work was it to get that purse made?
3: It was very easy. Um, (laughs) Legally, I feel like I'm not sure I can say that I custom ordered it from a website called (laughs) bagsoflove.com, so I'm not going to say that. But wherever I obtained it from, it arrived in three days. And I had it in my house for a full month before the Emmys, and it drove me insane to not post a picture of it online.
0: I mean, it's it was genius, and it really was quite the moment on the Internet. When did you realize, oh, I've really hit on something here?
3: I knew that no one was going to want to take a picture of me for any other reason. Uh, because I am not famous. I'm a TV writer. I, no one knew who I was walking down the red carpet. So I knew that I had to do something kind of splashy to get my photo taken. So I arrived at the very beginning of the red carpet like, to try and beat the famous people there um, so that the photographers who were bored would take pictures of me. And then I went into the theater, and I didn't realize there were no ins and outs, so I was stuck in the theater for, like, two and a half hours before <laughs> the Emmys actually started. It was, like, me and my husband and George R.R. R. Martin and, like, no one else. That actually just sounds like a
0: pretty bitchin' party. <laughs> Did you talk to George R.R. R. Martin?
3: We were sitting, like, 100 feet away from him, but yeah. I knew it was him. Um, so I was just looking at my phone, and I was just watching it blow up on Twitter, which was... Honestly, the best. Uh, it was all I wanted out of the Emmys. I knew we weren't going to win, so I wanted me to win.
0: <laughs> We're talking to Emily Heller here on Livewire. Uh, you, one of your gigs is that you write on the HBO show Barry, I do, which yeah. is fabulous. I highly recommend it to people.
3: Thank you um, so much.
0: It's this. It's uh, uh, Bill Hader uh, plays a, a hitman who goes out to LA to do a job and stumbles into a basically a theater class that's uh, taught by Henry Winkler. Uh, the show is funny, and it's uh, dark, and boy, uh, I, without giving anything away, it, towards the end of the season, it, it just ended up in a place I did not expect it to be as a viewer. Uh, what are the like conversations in the writer's room about that kind of stuff? Like, okay, we're going to go for this?
3: Yeah, I mean, one thing that I really liked about working on this show... Um, because it does deal with, like, death and murder and darkness and things like that, is that from the very beginning, Bill and Alec, who run the show, Bill Hader and Alec Berg, they were committed to there being consequences for people's actions, which I think TV shows don't always do. A lot of times they reset. A lot of times they don't take the consequences of violence seriously. and, um, And so as a result, following logically the actions of a character who does violent things bad things happen as a result and we we just wanted it to be true to what would happen and it ended up being darker and darker like we talked logically about you know okay realistically what would he do in this scenario and and a lot of times it was something really really bad um i really
0: admired you guys doing that because i really wanted it to be a show about a hitman with a heart of gold
3: (laughs) I mean, I think people hear Bill Hader playing a hitman, they think it's going to be, because he is so likable on screen, and I think the show really challenges your ability to like him in a way that's complicated, um, which I liked.
0: Emily Heller, everyone. Her new comedy special, Pasta, will be out soon.
3: Thank you so much.
0: This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking about Letting Go this week. Our musical guests this hour are indie legends here in Portland. They're set to re-release a deluxe 10th anniversary edition of their amazing album, Keep Your Eyes Ahead. Please welcome back to Live Wire, the Helio Sequence. You guys have been, have been playing together for like over 20 years now? 22 years. It, was, it would be the, the first show that we ever played together, 96. That's unbelievable. You guys do not look old enough to have been playing together for 22 years. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and I, I read somewhere that you have really kind of, you know, 22 years in, you've re-examined and re-sort of worked your creative process. Or how you're putting songs together? I mean, are you, are you doing things differently all these years later, or do you have a system that you're just kind of sticking with?
4: I mean, maybe that's part of the reason we've been going so long, Is I feel like in every time we sit down to write another record, we're learning how to do it again, or trying to chase something new. So it always keeps it fresh in that sense. Uh, what song are we going to hear? Uh, we're going to play Lately, which is the first
0: track from Keep Your Eyes Ahead. All right, this is the Helio sequence on Livewire. Is the Helio Sequence right here on Livewire? All right, that's going to do it for our show. Thanks to our guests Tommy Pico, Eli Saslow, Emily Heller, and the Helio Sequence. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our production director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. And Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thank you so much, as always, to the fine folks at Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by Work for Art and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Patricia Selby of Portland, Oregon, for her support. For more information about our show, how you can listen to our podcast, or get our newsletter... Head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.
5: PRI Public Radio International.